Welcome to Tuke Talk, a video podcast by the band Tuke, and brought to you by Blackfrog Media. We chat with the best in the music industry from yesterday and today with a focus on the good old days of Canadian rock. This episode originally streamed live on Tuesday, January 19th, 2021 on Facebook Live. Now, here are your hosts, Todd, Brent, Shane, Corey, and Darren. Hey, oh, I had doing? a two cup, but I went with the with the venti. Oh, <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend, Dad. Nice, Dad. Dad. Yeah, Darren's the only grandfather amongst us. Yet he's the youngest one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't waste That's any true. time. I don't waste no. any time. You know, I, yeah. I plant my seeds. I got to make sure that my uh, you know legacy lives on because you're like uh, creating franchises. Make sure you could put together like a hockey team if you wanted. Really, at this exactly. Point. You know, and I, I, and there was a while there where I thought you know like this is great, but now it, I miss it. You know, it's kind of like the kids are old now. They're out. They're doing their own thing, and I'm sitting around going, "What do I do now?" So. That's exactly it. I'm gonna have to take yeah. up one of these old man hobbies earlier yep. in life, I guess. So, yeah. Well, there's always shuffleboard. That's the which I yeah. It's a it's a you know we call it curling up here. It's actually <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all we've all partaken in uh, in in curling at one point or another in our lives, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've tried it. <laughs> yeah, he says it all shamefully. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer I prefer shuffleboard. Yeah. Yeah, I've never played shuffleboard. It's, I can say that. It's just shuffleboard on ice, isn't it? It is. Pretty much, yeah. It's like, I mean, shuffleboard That's what they, is more of a, a bar game, right? With the, the little rocks on the salted table, but same idea. Isn't that a lot right. of cruise, cruise ships, too? The, uh, the whatever the name of like that a, thing is. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hmm. There's a special yeah. name for it, and I don't remember what it is, but. I actually thought that was shuffleboard, but you're saying that that one at the bar with the salt on the table, that was shuffleboard? That's shuffleboard. That's yeah. shuffleboard. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I oh. think it's. Mm-hmm. It's probably just a, a different take on the same game, I would imagine. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. but yeah. essentially it all derives from the good old game of curling. So there you go. Perhaps some bowling in there. I'm not sure how that works, but yeah. Yeah, I guess, sure. you know, there's also Maybe. bocce. What do they call it? Bocce, bocce, bocce ball. Bocce yeah. is awesome. On bowling, yeah. yeah. Did you ever get that? Did you ever find that droid that speaks bocce? I know you were looking for a protocol. <laughs> I know when I said bocce, I was thinking, no, that's Star Wars. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is called bocce ball, isn't it? <laughs> yes. I think so. Yeah, I don't okay. know. But Italian. I believe it's spelled B-O-C-C-I. So that's right. Bocce. Bocce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, How's everybody doing? Uh, Shane isn't good. with us. There's terrible winds happening. Hopefully, our guest can be here because he's in the Southern California region. And um, what is Shane going on is, down there? Uh, is it just crazy weather, or is it? Uh, it's it's the windy. winds. The winds are so bad right now that they always uh, preemptively cut power because a lot of times the power lines will fall over and the transformers will start fires and all those crazy fires that you see in California. Some of them have been started that way. I always thought the transformers were the good guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not yeah. in this case. Not if they hit the ground. What, what about the Decepticons? How's that going to work? I... <laughs> yeah, all those movies take place in LA, so I'm only assuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, are you I'm talking only... about this? Is it the Santa Ana winds that does that? Um, it's just like a freak sort of windstorm that I don't. It could be. I don't. I don't think it's the Santa Anas, but anyway, I mean, he, Shane's only 45 minutes from me, and and it's really windy here too. But um, they haven't warned us about cutting our power although uh, our guest is saying that he might just just disappear in the middle of the 
interview. That's based luckily on, for our and luckily for all of you, I have a lot of prepared spoken word nonsense. Good. <laughs> yeah. Haikus. Hours and hours. Haikus. Uh, all kinds of yeah, yeah, all kinds of things. Lots of dad jokes, yeah. Lots of dad jokes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you guys been following the uh, the start of the NHL season, I'm sure. Yes. I haven't. I haven't been following at all. Tell it was catch me up on this. What what's been happening? Um, well, I mean, hockey. Um, who's no, your I know team? that. <laughs> you're obviously, you're obviously uh, a Golden Knights guy, so you should well, know that um, Winnipeg. Born Mark, well, Winnipeg born Mark Stone is now your new captain, the first captain in uh, Knights history. So, that's and, right. That's right. Their original draft pick was Cody Glass from Winnipeg. There you yeah, go. So Everything's about Winnipeg, Corey. I don't know if you've learned this yet, but <laughs> yeah. when you're hanging out with Winnipeg guys, everything circles back, and it does somehow circle back to Winnipeg. It's a shock. Yeah, really the Jets, are, the Jets are one and one. We blew it, uh, you know, last night against the Leafs, but uh, that's all right. Mm-hmm. But the Knights are three and zero. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, right. That's great. right. This could be the year for Vegas. Who knows? You know, but yeah. Well, it's um, been pretty close a couple times, hasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's true. Can't go to a game. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Where yeah. where are you guys at with that now? Because we just got new um, word that our code red is coming to an end this Friday. After I don't know oh, how really? long it's been, so that's actually good. Um, for oh, really? Extended. I'm sure California is way locked down. Hey, Corey. Um, apparently, the numbers are flattening now, so that's good. But uh, yeah, it's still pretty bad here, and um, but they are vaccinating now. Anybody over 65 can now get vaccinated. And and any healthcare workers. So close. So yeah, close. Know, yeah. So close. <laughs> 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 so is that just uh, like a um are they is it walk in kind of just hey I you I want to get this vaccination? Like what's you have the to um you have to make an appointment online. Uh you go to some website in LA LA vaccination or something and hmm. set up a time and then you go. But then of course you have to do the second the second LA one like a month later. Mm. Oh, there's a follow-up. Wow. Yeah, it's like a two a two a back uh two needle thing. Mm-hmm. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. A double. So it's kind of like uh like any other vaccination, right? It's a two-part thing. So well that's good. Yeah, we we are still in obviously high numbers, but they've loosened up because up until now it was zero people in your house other than family. Right. I mean, and and to people watching too, because you know, I get this email all the time. I mean some of the, you know, the, the orders online, I mean, yeah, they're a little delayed and we apologize for that, but understand that you can't buy an envelope right now because it's considered non-essential. So, you know what, we're really doing our best. Yeah. Like you can't buy that stuff. I mean, wow. you know, if you want to go to the store and buy an envelope, it's non-essential. So up until now, everything has been deemed non-essential and uh, we're opening that up. And uh, yeah, so we appreciate your patience. While Interesting. We, uh, work, while we work through this uh, difficult time, so man, the oh best man. way the best the, ba- the best way to support these guys is to just kind of you know stop emailing every day and know that it's just getting out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get around to it. Yeah, we still have T-shirts exactly. and stuff, Darren. What 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 do we got? Yeah, and uh, you know what the problem? And again, and I, I mean, normally we'd be we'd be pumping a lot of this stuff, but because. It's just not a thing that we can get out and, you know, mail out. And I know people like to, you know, expect things in a couple of days, but that's just not realistic in this have time you, uh, Have you had the experience, because I've been doing this for a million years, it's sort of like someone orders a T-shirt and then like 20 minutes later goes, where's my T-shirt? Have you, have you had to deal with that? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, that's well, always because, hilarious to me. 
keep in mind that you know we all grew up in a time period where it's like oh a new album's out so i'm going to go down to the store i'm going to buy this album i'm going to bring it home well now it's like no everything is and i mean we're competing with guys like amazon who yeah you'll get get it into two days but we're not amazon and uh you know that's just the way it is so no i mean it's either it's, it's yeah it's it's because of the, the the internet and everything else everything's sort of like boom it's either boom or you have to wait a long time. Yeah. Right. But, but given the fact that now, and, and the thing is too, is that, I mean, you know, it's the stay home kind of mentality as well. So, I mean, you know, we're not going out and doing a lot of stuff. So, uh, easing up this week and yes, we will be introducing some cool Valentine's day, uh, specials because Mm -hmm. that's that's our next up and coming. uh, That's right. The Shane, the Shane gals kissing booth again. That's going to be, that's right. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, yeah. It's a socially distanced kissing, kissing booth. So you can <laughs> make out with your laptop. It's gonna be great. Yes, and uh, yeah, exactly. These guys. Where's my toque? Where's Darren? Sneak me a hoodie. Yeah, sneak one. Yeah. <laughs> sneak where's, one. Yeah. Where's my toque? Who's online picture? right now? Anybody good? Um, I can't. Uh, yeah. How come we can never see? Only you can tell. Who's, I can see. He's, he's the boss yeah, man. Well, if, if, you follow, I mean, if you follow the feed, I just. I mean, I guess. How do you uh, do that? How do you do on that? YouTube, on Facebook or, uh, or YouTube or Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that means I got to go to my phone. That's too much work. My friend Kelly Pettit is here. He's from Japan, and he says they haven't got one single vaccine in Japan yet. Really? No way. Hmm. And uh, I also saw that pretty much Australia is back to like normal now. Is that like you guys would know you have probably more friends and, and connections down there, but is that a thing? Like they're doing concerts and everything now, right? Is that. Ask Treadwell. He's probably on right now. Well, you know, it's a uh, well. little-known fact that uh, Vegemite makes you immune to uh, the coronavirus. Kills the coronavirus. That's Vegemite. right. Yeah. That's all it takes. Vegemite. Yeah. A solves thin everything. layer on a piece of toast, and that's all mm. it takes. What is Vegemite? Yeah. It's a Australian thing. It's kind of <laughs> black, yeasty some spread. Sort of, uh, veggie it's spread. Yeasty it's molasses a topping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's a... It's an acquired I, taste. We as Canadians all heard that term in the song uh, "Land Down Under" by the yeah. Men at Work. He, he just, just smiled, smiled and made me and made me a Vegemite sandwich. Unwedged. Yeah, and he and said, and we're like, "What the hell's Vegemite?" And then I get there, and they have them on the table, Darren, like you know, like the small like jams that you get at the diner, like those little plastic jams. It'd be like that yeah, big. Yeah. You peel them back. They have Vegemite like that by Heinz and shit. And you're like, "Whoa!" Uh, you didn't expect it to be that like normal. It was just like, "Yeah, it's just what they do." See, and the and the song lyric, I mean, you know, as well as I do, probably before that, the internet, when you heard something, you probably just made up whatever made sense to you. So probably wouldn't even have put that together. I mean, you know, all these places, you know, just like Def Leppard. I mean, what the hell is saccharine? You know, like, come on. You know, like, <laughs> I think people well, are that's... making up rhyming words now. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, Vegemite, I was... Vegemite in Canada is called Nutella. You know, that's pretty much, you know. <laughs> That's, that's yeah. the, uh, the closest not even close. Spread. It's not no. even close, but yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's, the only, that's the only molasses-like spread I can think of up here. I've never, mm. I don't eat it as well, but it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's chocolate that's, and hazelnuts. Would that's be a dessert-type item, I believe, yeah. <laughs> not really? I mean, yeah, I don't know. They advertise it for people for breakfast, so, but I mean, oh, you gotta you know, have well, there the, you go. is awesome. Yeah, well, it's, it's like like they say, you know, a part of this nutritious breakfast because they put it next to an orange or something, it's right? Not, <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, everything's part of a nutritious yeah. breakfast if it's next to an right. orange. A, a bowl of tricks, some Nutella <laughs> on toast. You know, Labatt's blue, Labatt's <laughs> blue, right next to an orange. There you go. Part, grapefruit, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Part of a nutritious breakfast. 
<laughs> so, I mean, other than that, everything's good. You guys are keeping healthy, safe, doing uh, yeah. doing your thing. We're yeah. alive. Yeah. Alive and well. Fantastic. All good here. Um, so, we've got a, a good show. I mean, uh, really good you know, show. What, what can you say about uh, our guest today, other than the fact that, you know, in terms of, of, Canadians successful abroad. I mean, we're talking about you know playing with one of the biggest ever, right? So uh, the first concert, the first concert I ever attended, he was the first guitar player because they opened the show. So that says something. Wow, what says a lot was that? Uh, Brian Adams opening for Loverboy in 1983. Wow, we were but lads, but yeah, he would have been. You know, he was the lead guitar player in the first act of the night kind of thing in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at the Centennial Auditorium. I'm not sure what it's called now, but we played there with Slash. So, once. It was uh, so how old would you surreal. have been at that point? I was 37. <laughs> <laughs> Do the math. Yeah. <laughs> I was 13. That was damn 13. Lanigan water, you know, and just yeah, exactly. of youth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like, this is all CGI. Corey, yeah, you should do yeah. the introduction though. Let's it, you you go for it. Okay. Well, I'm so excited. I'm actually a bit a bit nervous because this guy, this any guitar players out there know this guy is is the guitar player's guitar player. Um, he's just known for being so tasty. Everything he plays has a purpose and says exactly what needs to be said and nothing more. Um, he's been with Brian forever. He's a lifer with Brian Adams for sure. Super nice guy. Apparently, he plays hockey. Because my friend Kelly Pettit, who's there, said that he really? played with him in Burby um, at eight rinks. Um, wow. So I'll talk to him about that. And he's played with another one of our guests that's been on, Jan Arden. That's right. Mm. But we're going to hear all about all about these stories from the legendary Keith Scott, everybody. And and you know what? Yes, he's coming on. But be, I forgot to mention, and I will but, mention that. Um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, yes, we, we do try to take a lot of uh, viewer comments. So, you know, if you have a question, be patient. You only need to post it once. We'll uh, we'll try to get it uh, addressed. But uh, by all means, uh, let's bring on the uh, one and only uh, Keith Scott. Hey, Keith. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for having me, guys. It would have been really. It would have been really funny if your if the wind and all that had caused your feet to die, and we just kind of went through all that, and you weren't there. After all that, just a big staticky box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that's where Keith would have been. Yeah, that's thank actually you for part, for, part for the show here. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Yeah, so for, happy to have you. This, this yeah, is so exciting. Thank you. How uh, how how? What have you been doing with your time during all this uh, downtime? Well, I mean, I, I just to give you a back story. I. We were on tour in Scandinavia in March and starting to hear all the stories about the danger of, uh, of the health risk and all that. So right. we, our first show was in Tallinn, Estonia, and then we went to uh, Helsinki and the word was we had to go home. So since the first week of March, uh, I've been home and not traveled anywhere, save for a short trip to Joshua Tree Park with my daughter in December, just to have a few days. So that's uh, literally 10 months ago. I've done the yeah. math on this. And I just like I, I'm uh, you, you haven't been off stage that long in a long time. Have you? Um, there's been parts of our career. Like when I moved to the United States in 2008, Brian went solo and I didn't really right. tour with anybody. I, I play at home a lot, every day kind of thing. It's not the same, but right. Um, yeah. yeah, I didn't there's been times where we didn't tour as much maybe two years of the almost 40 years now uh, working with this guy so crazy 
Yeah, and mostly I, working. You know, we, we've been lucky to to be able to tour around a lot. So absolutely, I don't know if you heard me talking earlier, but the first concert. I mean, I, I saw the Irish Rovers, so we can can we include that? Is that a remember, remember the Irish <laughs> yeah. Rover? Of course. Uh, but the first real concert I saw. Not to now, I'm going to get a bunch of hate mail from the Irish Rovers fans. Sorry, fans. Uh, but the first real concert I saw in Saskatoon was uh, on the um, Get Lucky tour. Uh, lover boy with brian adams opening mm -hmm. and so that was 83 so you were technically the first guitar player i rock guitar player i ever saw live was was you guys saskatoon saskatchewan centennial auditorium and you guys were on fire because i remember we were only casually aware of brian at that point but i remember just being like whoa this guy's like like there was a lot of energy in 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 that in that band in that time and it was just like no surprise to us that this was going to be huge yeah i mean that seems so long ago and funny you mentioned that because cut second knife had just come out and we mm -hmm. started to get you know, a lot more attention especially over the border and that's kind of the whole intent of it and um i, I have to say there was a little bit of rivalry between lover boy and us because they were established really well and yeah, i think we were probably flexing our muscles a little just see how how we could do but you know it's uh, I remember those that tour because they uh, they weren't happy with a couple of things we were doing. They thought oh, we were yeah? stealing some of their show tricks, which you know, there's I, you guys all know. You go on tour, and there's certain things that are kind of the ritual for a rock and roll show. They're like, okay, put your hands go, whatever. There's things that just kind of happen between you and the crowd, and they wound up being a little bit similar to them. So they didn't like that very much, but. Just like objectively, who do you think would win in a fist fight, Brian Adams or Mike Reno? Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Peace, love in Vancouver, guys. I don't think we should. No, that would never. I'm happen. not going to go there. <laughs> but but if, you're, uh, if you're saying that they're trying to take credit for the putting your hands together, that's like Gene Simmons trying yeah. to you know, trademark this. You know, like, yeah. yeah. No, I wouldn't be that specific. It was it was really small things, and I think at some point, and I think we talked about this earlier that everybody kind of knows each other. A lot yeah. of the people that worked for Loverboy then are from the prairies, uh, all yeah. the, the sound people and what have mm -hmm. you, and some of the people that were with us. So it's a small community in Canada that, yeah, there's people from all across the country that are involved in the business. And, and it's a short tenure where, you you know, you run into people, oh, he used to work for here with us. So you got to be careful who you talk that about because they might know. Of course. <laughs> Of and, course, yeah. And in, in Mike Reno's case, he's a peace-loving guy, I'm sure, so I don't think he'd want to get involved. He's the best. And Brian's well, a vegan, so I don't think there'd be much of a fight at all. <laughs> exactly. well, the, uh, I was going to say, but that is the cross that all opening acts carry, is no matter the, the, the stage, you know, the room that you're allowed to perform on is always smaller, and, you know, your set time and the lighting, and it, there's a lot of things that people don't understand when you go to see a band opening for somebody else. There's a lot of stipulations that happen, and if Brian had stepped out on a certain part of the stage that was meant for, for you know, what, you know what I mean, like that kind of stuff. We've done oh, the yeah. tours with, with, with Aerosmith, and you're not allowed to go out on that thing. And you're like, okay, whatever. Yeah, it's we've all done that a million times, all these different people we opened it in, the, especially in the first five years when you're trying to get established. And uh, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of rules. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Backstage rules, all that kind of stuff. But Brent Fitz has the best like touring with poison stories where you're not allowed to talk to certain girls. But that's another <laughs> conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even talk about it today. <laughs> no. it's the, the CC Deville uh, non-disclosure, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. He had to sign that thing. It's uh, 
Um, so here's the point where we can bring in some of this because some good questions coming in here. Um, this is something that I didn't know, uh, true or false, I'm not sure, but uh, Keith, maybe you can shed some light on this. Richard has a question for you. You were invited to audition for Kiss in 1982, allegedly. What's the story? Was that true? Completely false. Completely false. <laughs> Great story, though. Great story. That is a good well, story. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, Richard's asking the question and that's why, uh, you know, we do these things. So the really funny, to- the funniest thing about that was that would still be makeup days, too. So it would have been like Keith Scott being forced into like. OK, uh, so that that brings in, that brings on a, a good question. If you were to have done that, <laughs> what, would you, what would your makeup character be? Uh, a lot more um, amenable than it would be today. So <laughs> so many years younger. So <laughs> Well, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. So there you go. Exactly. But well, here's one that will be relevant too. So favorite guitar solo out of all your catalog and is your favorite guitar in your collection? Favorite well, guitar? a favorite guitar. Well, yeah, I have, I just held one up. That's in the top few for sure. I, I think that was before we, were on, before we were live. I'll explain yeah. it. My, I got a, a present from my wife uh, when I turned 40, which was some time ago. Um, uh, 1954 Stratocaster as a birthday present, so I treasure that wow. one, and it be, and it plays great, and I keep it at home, so it stays you know in one piece. Because as you guys all know, instruments just get destroyed out there. I have oh, I sweat. It's I swear it's like battery acid. If it sweats on a guitar, everything just kind of melts, you know. So wow, I don't know what it is. I might my metabolism is active or something. But uh, a favorite solo. Um, you know, I get this question a lot, right? Which favorite song you ever did, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I keep deferring to one song with Brian, and it's a track, the title track from Into the Fire. Cool. Oh, my favorite. That is my favorite song. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. um, and I think it might be mine even after all this time. Um, there's, cool. been, there's been different recordings that I've been pretty proud of, and I don't know if you guys feel the same, but if you record in a traditional way, when I say traditional, a bunch of guys go into a studio on the floor and you track a song, bass, guitars, maybe keyboard, and the singer, whatever. And whatever is on the floor to get the drum track or the whatever, the rhythm track, if you can sage something from that, like the solo you did as an ersat solo to get you through the song, and that has happened occasionally. And wow. when that does happen, that's to me is spontaneity. And in our case, we always... Well, since I started recording with Brian, the general sense was you go in as a band, you cut the track, you take, you know, maybe edit to together two takes that gave it your best possible res- representation, and you overdubbed some guitars on top of that. Sometimes you actually kept the rhythm track or whatever, but if you kept the solo, that was a big deal. Like, oh, wow. wow. So the solo into the fire of that track was off one of the basic tracks. And no I, way. And that to me is like, when I, I'm a big jazz fan, so when you recorded a jazz like Miles Davis or something, they would go in for one day and they'd do a whole album in one day, kind of thing, or two yeah. days. And yeah. it was, it was a, an audio snapshot of that particular idea, that music, and there was no coming in later. Well, let's add, you know, they didn't never, they never did that. They didn't have any budget. So no, no. Um, I, I always kind of defer to that. And I, I like that song specifically because of the mood and the sentiment of it and, and what the lyrics spoke of and, and the music that went with it. And on top of that, the solo came from the basic track. So I, I think as the years go on, you, you kind of go back and there's a lot of reminiscing and 
that one really sticks out to me. I have to say it's at the top of the list. That's a great album. That's a really great album. Thank you. You got um, more questions, Darren? Or you? Or yeah, should we? Well, they're coming in. I mean, you know, the obvious one I was going to ask is, I mean, how many years of your life did you go to bed with the beginning of summer of '69 running? <laughs> <laughs> is that a, is that a question for me? Because a lot for <laughs> <laughs> me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we talked before because you guys saying playing with Slash and you had Lemmy come up and Slash says to Lemmy, "Hey, let's do Ace of Spades," and he goes, "Fuck you! Why don't we do Sweet Child of Mine?" And, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. the same thing, right? I mean, is that is that the song that it's kind of that? You know, I mean, you must have played that a million times. You know, it's oh, there's like, into the fire on vinyl. There we go uh, on vinyl. Well, I got it handy, vinyl. Keith. It's always close by. This is such a great. Hey, that's a great record. What's he, what's he looking at? Is the question? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's a pizza parlor, and he's starving. He wants to get. A <laughs> <laughs> Do you recognize where it is? No, where is that? That's New York. Oh, it's oh, New, York. It's New York. Okay. Oh, I was going to say New Westminster. No, I'm way off here. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, is is Summer of '69 like that that song? Is it the Sweet Home Alabama to Leonard Skinner or like that that song that you kind of like? It's such a great. I mean, there's such brilliant things about the simplicity of a song like that. That to, I could play those opening chords at any show, anytime whether it's in front of like Wembley or in front of like the local bar and everybody knows all the words. Everybody knows everything about that song. They know the solo, you know, it's like, it's mental. I think if an artist gets to that point and they have a song and becomes kind of universally known, that that's such a bonus. And oh yeah. That's where I've always looked at it. like, what do you, absolutely. Yeah. Song, we say the song plays itself because the crowd takes over and sings. And I don't know. I always thought it was kind of a luxury thing that. percent. That, that people well, and in your case, I mean, not only can you say, can a song get any bigger? And then you come out and go, yes, it can. Here's the soundtrack to Robin Hood, you know, and all of a sudden right. it's even bigger, right? I mean, there's, you know, just everything about, uh, you know, those songs. I mean, who doesn't know those or, you know, who hasn't heard those? Yeah. Especially if you knew the background to the recording side and how not only us, but everybody around us, the management, the record company, and how they viewed what you were doing. And specifically, let's say, let's start with Summer 69. They went, well, it's just kind of a back end of the album track. Wow. It doesn't have a strong chorus. You know, just, I, I think it's like the second last song of the record, if you look at the, the listing on, on, cuts, um, on Reckless. But they didn't feel that positive about it. But when you go out and you go and tour it, and it, I think eventually it was released at the end as a signal, a single because it was getting such a positive response live, and it had a life of its own, nothing to do with us or anything. It just kind of, it, it became a like uh, like an anthem in some ways for that generation, and I don't know why. It's just one of those weird things. We can't explain it. And everything I do is almost the same situation where uh, we were recording a record with Muth Lang in, uh, in London. And we'd come to the very end of the session. We'd moved out of Mutt's house in uh, southwest London, which had a big studio. And we moved up into Battery in north London uh, just to keep us more focused and, and whatever. And this song came in at the very end of the session. It was well, kind of hmm. like, well, let's just throw it on the movie. The film company, I can't remember the name of the film company, but they didn't like the song, really, but they didn't have anything else. The song was uh, 
was kind of a theme that Michael came and the composer for the film had come up with. And he literally sent this cassette that was him whistling over a keyboard going. <laughs> and that's all it was. 30, 40 seconds of music. And wow. we broke for the, the weekend and Mutt said, we'll see if we can come up with a middle eight for this thing. <laughs> <And> <laughs> he came back on Monday in the studio and Mutt said, did you come up with anything? He said, Brian, I don't know, not really. I did this. And Mutt says, well, I got this. And he started singing, well, Corey, you probably know this. And this dude, no lyric. <laughs> and, you know, and, and the guy is a special human being and musically and everything. So we were like, okay, well, you've got some pieces here. And then they kind of went through the script and threw the lyric together. Uh, the space for the solo was the last day. And we were in the control room. We had a sound up. And there was two guys from the film company because they wanted the song that night to give to the Whoa. <laughs> and we were like, this thing is a piece of crap. No one's going to care. I'm just thinking, wow. you know, in context with, with Waking Up the Neighbors, which was very heavy guitar oriented record mm -hmm. uh, and it, it just didn't fit and it was it, okay well, we'll go in the film and that'll be the end of it and we'll see what happens and um i did the song <laughs> these two guys were talking really loud <laughs> and i was looking at my you could see i was getting really upset that they weren't like giving me my space to kind of, I mean, it's a sensitive moment. You hear these, you know, the route to the floor going by and you're going, Oh, this is, this is my David Gilmore moment. I, I can't totally. wait to try to get into this. We had that kind of sound up and everything, the comfortably numb kind of approach. And, and I thought this is going to be great. And these guys kept talking and he says, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. Just relax. <laughs> how, how, how irritated I was becoming with these guys. And they were talking about like their racehorses or something. I don't know what they were, you know, it was just so distracting. And anyway, everybody sang the solo. I started it with the first line. Then uh, Mutt said, do, 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 do for the second line. Brian went, da, da, or I played the next one. Then Brian went, do, do. Uh, he, literally, it was a solo by committee. Wow. 20 minutes. Wow. And it was done. And I wow. played 10 more passes of the same thing and they, you know, did their magic. And, but this, uh, my point was that the song was very, uh, it wasn't very highly regarded. It, it was just a throwaway. And then it came out and there was no other ballads that summer that from the contenders like Phil Collins and Whitney Houston and all that. So it was like free reign for us. It became kind of a wedding sort of a song. Oh, it was massive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like Actually, that uh, that brings up a question from Jeremy when we're talking about Mutt. He, uh... Jeremy White. I don't know why Jeremy White's not. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe he tuned out already. Well, his question was, what piece of direction did Mutt Lang give you? Oh, there he goes. I can see the question. Yeah, there you go. So uh, Jeremy is uh, coming on screen with us. Yeah. So anything that uh, any advice that a producer like that would have uh, given you and stuck with you? I, I have to say of any producer I've worked with, I've been very fortunate to work with some terrific ones over the years. And he really, in every sense, he stands above everybody that I've worked with. And it's not just how he approached recording and songwriting and all that. It was his humanity and the 
he really is an exceptional human being to me I, that I've ever met in the music business. And he's treated me so well. And I learned so much. It's been really difficult to pinpoint anything specific other than just be yourself. And, he, and the ability never to whistle solos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, middle eight. He, I never seen a human being operate in that kind of capacity before where he could get no sleep and still be completely functional the ne next day. And it's, true. It, it's something about his lifestyle and what he embraces as part of that. I, I don't, I, I say it's part of his makeup, his faith or whatever. I mean, and I've talked to people, I talked to his first wife, Stevie about him a little bit when around that time. And uh, I, I only think I can think of, he's, he's very competitive like he within himself, he wants to create great things, and if anything, the the trick is in the details. And there was things that I had to play that I didn't think were physically possible because he would kind of map them out on a guitar because he plays guitar mm -hmm. to some extent, and he would play. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can physically do that. But after I practiced a little bit and I saw what I saw, I was able to get through it. And uh, he just pushed, pushed you to be better than you were. And I think that is something that is rare. Like people come in, they want to make a record quick. They got to make it under budget. Uh, all that that comes into play. But he didn't care how much time it took as long as it was great. And I always took that as like, wow, he, he really cares about what he does. And he, he was very specific about what kind of clients he worked with and uh, who he wanted to show who he was and how he wrote. And uh, it, I don't know. I, I worked with some pretty great people, in my, David Foster and Bob Rock and all kinds of great people. And Bob Clearmountain, of course, Jim Valance. Uh, these people were super talented, all of them in their own way. And, of course. Well, and, and speaking of greatness, a uh, good question coming from Glenn here, too, is uh – Always love when Brian played with Bonnie Raitt, and that's not the one I tried to queue up, but it oh, was Where Did It Go? That is a classic. Well, he must have deleted it. Um, he was saying, what was it like playing with David Bowie? That was <laughs> something. Well, being a huge fan. There as it a is. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, it was, I was pretty nervous. I, um, I, when I first Bambi, when I my high school mates and I got together when I'm my senior year as a high school, we, we probably played all of Hunky Dory, all of uh, Man Who Sold the World. And wow. I mean, that we were just huge Bowie freaks. And for me, it was Mick Ronson because he was somebody I really identified with. And um, so I said, Bruce Fairburn, the producer in Vancouver, was asked to do some, some tracking with him down in Los Angeles. And I came down with a bass player, Renee Wurst from Vancouver. And Mickey Curry, Brian's drummer, played drums. Yeah, I can't remember. There might have been another musician on it. I can't remember. And we were just tracking these songs that um, David had already demoed with the Tin Machine guys. And the label was trying to get him more focused into the mainstream. And that's why they got Bruce Fairbairn involved, who, of course, had big success with Bon Jovi and, uh, and uh, Aerosmith and stuff like that. So... I, I'm guessing that's what they were trying to push him more into that kind of sound. And because the Tin Machine songs that we were learning from were like, it was nuts. Great. I'm it sure was nuts. Great. It was great, but it was, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, yeah. You got the wrong guy. I'm a little bit more controlled than that. But 
I don't think he was happy with it. You know, I, I think he was just kind of going through it. But it was a real thrill to sit in the room and you're you're kind of hunkered in and you hear his voice come through the cans. You're like, oh, this is like a weird dream. You know, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Being such a fan and all that. So, but uh, yeah, we did a we did three songs. I think we did a cover of like a Rolling Stone, uh, a Bob Dylan song. Wow. And uh, it didn't. I think it made it that that actual recording with some of Mick on it. And I think Mick might have sang it. Oh, no, David sang it. And it made it onto Mick Ronson's posthumous record, which came out right. as Heaven and Hell. So that's the only remnant of it. I think they, I don't know what happened to the other songs, but it was a real thrill to, to be in the room with him. And he was an absolute gentleman. I have a great picture of him and I. <laughs> he said, I want to learn the chords to... Uh, the Bob Dylan song and he sent his assistant out to get a song book and there's a picture of us sitting on the studio floor with our guitars looking in the book and going over the changes I mean it's just G, A minor whatever, B minor, C, whatever the, the verse is. Right. There's a picture of me leaning over with that. <laughs> it just doesn't seem real <laughs> but, <laughs> And we're talking about a lot of the greats and a lot of the greats that we lost especially and, uh, and it brings up a good question here where uh, Paul was saying you know read uh, an interview with Eddie Van Halen and named you as one of his guitarists that he liked. Did you ever get the chance to meet Eddie? And uh, what, what was your take on Eddie as a, as a guitar player? And uh, obviously as a, and you know, such an influence on the, on the guitar world. Well, you've basically described him. He has been one of the biggest influences for guitar players uh, since the first record came out. And, I remember the late uh, late seventies, early eighties. I was playing a lot of the clubs around the Vancouver area, and a, a music seemed to be going more of a punk direction. Um, we say new wave or whatever you want to call it. Guitar, the, the emphasis wasn't so much on virtuosity. It was more like just playing block chords and stuff. And mm-hmm. he was thinking, well, maybe guitar soloing, but per se, is just kind of out the window. And then this record. I think it was a few records that came out that time, but that one really stood out. And he'd go and play in a club, and they, the DJ would put the, the cover of You Really Got Me and the whole eruption thing. You're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Just the vibe of it, you know? It wasn't, totally. not, it wasn't as though it was harmonically difficult to understand. It was just the whole attitude was so great, you know, and the energy and then the, the rethinking of how to play rock guitar and, the tapping, of course, was, you know, I mean, he says he wasn't the first guy to do it, but he should, he made let the world know about it in a That's great right, way. Yeah, so, yeah I, I, I can't deny he was an influence on me. I, I love how he wrote music, how he put chords together and gave the guitar like free reign. It was like, hey, screw you. I'm going to do what I want and that whole thing. And I just thought, good for you, did man. You, did you guys ever have the opportunity to cross paths? Yes, we did. We uh, The first time I met him, we... Uh, had done a show at Madison Square Garden, and him and his brother, the drummer, came, uh, and uh, Alex, and uh, they uh, they were having a good time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> as as in those days, you know, he he could, uh, but he was really sweet. He's always been really nice to me. I've met him like maybe three or four times, and he's come to our shows. He loves Brian singing, so he he's a fan. And he's always been very complimentary, and uh, no, I just not, nothing too musical or anything like that. Just hi, how you doing? Uh, great show. Uh, I always heard things after the fact from other people, like, "Oh, 
you know, did you know that he was out on the riser in the by the sound console losing his shit about your sound? And I said, no, you didn't say anything about the sound. I could, you know, why would he care? He has the sound, you know. <laughs> but he, he liked different things, and he he didn't like people that played like him. He liked people that played different things, you know, mm-hmm. like you know, maybe weren't as flashy. Maybe it was more to the point or something. I don't know. But I, I have to say, in, in person, he always treated me very well, and he was very nice. And uh, something came out in, in, a, in an interview where he mentioned my name or something, or mentioned me, and I thought that was pretty nice. But I, outside of that, I don't, I couldn't have told you. I mean, he, well, I think in a guitar world, that would probably be the best compliment one could probably get, right? I mean, when you get guys yeah. like that, I mean, you. Know. Yeah, I, I was surprised, you know, because I didn't think he really noticed, you know, but he. He did like what we did. We did a show, uh, a tour in 1986. It was Amnesty International, and it was quite a roster. Um, I don't know how we got involved. Brian got his manager, Bruce, to somehow get to be part of it. And there were six concerts, uh, uh, San Francisco, Denver, uh, Atlanta. And the last show was in New Jersey outside at the football stadium. And the, that day was... Well, the, the main roster was U2, Peter Gabriel, Sting with his jazzy solo band with Branford Marsalis and all that. Right. Uh, it was all kinds of people. Us, we were like a pair of brown shoes at a wedding. We, we, what did we do? <laughs> <laughs> it was all like really, you know, contentious stuff. And the, you know, the, the artists that were there, uh, the Neville brothers. Um, but people would show up. It was like... Uh, Oh, just kind of all kinds of people, like as guests. Miles Davis was on the last show. Just wow, him and Santana on guitar with sitting in with him, and all kinds of people. But I think Ed had come as a guest to that show, and whatever we did that night, he he was knocked out by the sound, and I don't know why. Just just for some reason, that's what I heard after the fact, and I thought, okay. Well, that's I can sleep with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I dig that you know to hear stories like that because he's obviously a guitar player, such an appreciator of other guitar players' sounds, you know, mm-hmm. techniques. So, speaking of all that, what what was it like along your journey that you said I'm going to play like that guy? Like, because you have like a Gilmore esque kind of you know Clapton kind of thing that I always really dig in your playing, and I'm curious to know who were your guys when you were coming up. Well, uh, very good point. Al, at Clapton, for sure. When I started, I think the first actual vinyl record I bought, I was 13, 1967, 68, 68, was Cream, uh, Disraeli Gears, with that cover right. with all the colors. And that yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I mean, I was just starting to get into it. I don't even know if I, I guess I just had got a cheap guitar from my friend then. Uh, just a little Sears acoustic guitar with the strings that are this high off. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we all have that guitar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. maybe it's to appreciate when you do get a, a decent instrument. But exactly. Um, yeah. But that record, you know, that learning to play the I called the second generation blues that you know all those English greats that totally to the great blues, the real blues, and mm-hmm. turned it into an amplified. Uh, energetic form of it and we're we all were the beneficiaries of that so that's kind of what moved me forward was people like eric clapton jeff beck uh jimmy page of course in, in a different way but uh, but yeah. that kind of movement you know is 
because you could, as a beginner, you could sort of harmonically sense what was going on. Oh, that's a pentatonic box. I mean, that's the blues. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, trying to deliver it is another story, but uh, in the same capacity. But that, that's it's a whole other conversation, that thing about, like, if these white kids from England had not discovered the blues, how different would everything be? You know what I mean? Like, it's such a bizarre, because in America, it was largely an African-American blues scene, and those guys all found it, like John Mayle and all those, you know, all, Long John Baldry, all those guys were doing the blues, you know, True. and that changed guitar playing 100%. Like, all those guys we just talked about are all, they were all doing the stuff they were hearing on those records. The Stones, all those guys, you know what I mean? I totally agree, and and now, I mean, they're still seeing remnants of it, you know, with people, young kids, still trying oh, to... Oh, yeah. I think Stevie Ray Vaughan was the the last sort of real, you know, push for that. And yeah. Uh, hey, Keith, I don't know if it's intentional, but your camera keeps drifting. We got half your, uh, there you oh, go. Sorry. You, you kind of had the, the Todd Kearns borrowing trouble. Thing <laughs> going on there. Yeah. Bless you. Good, good reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we, we only had half your face there. There you go. But I guys know. like guys like Bonamassa, you know, guys like that were still kind of like, yeah. you know, finding new, th new ways to say stuff from that, from that, particular thing is is always interesting to me I, I i never really came up on on that on the blues per se more rock and punk rock and stuff like that but i'm always when i see guys say a lot uh within the guitar plank uh, did hendrix have any play on you because there was something i was there was something recently i was watching and i was like and there was hendrix moments so i was like yeah okay yeah i could see that now I think if you were a guitar player in a big amp, and like we all were, and, and my first good amp was a Marshall, you you wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. You just sure, yeah. <laughs> getting the sound was another story, and it's only through time that and you research it and you realize, well, it wasn't that complicated uh, from that point of view. It just, you know, it was a him playing, of course, um, and then the fuzz thing which overdrove the amp to craziness and <laughs> yeah. just how he controlled that and, and the mood of the day. Uh, it, it, everything was in context. In 1967, I was 13, 14 years old. My world was upside down. I don't know. I mean, in the prairies is, is, is similar, I guess, in some ways, but on the West coast, uh, the summer of love in 1967, Vancouver was the San Francisco of Canada of course. All, the, all the, the people that live free like that were living there. A lot of people were coming up from the United States to get away from the draft. Um, there's a whole uh, periphery of musicians in the Vancouver area that were in that situation, like the girls in heart and all those people. They I was just away. talking to, I was just talking yeah. to Howard Lease about this the other day. Cause he, he said, say hello to you. He loves your playing. Yeah. And he, but, I met, he was one of the first guys I met when I just joined this club band and I met Howard at a party and he said, I'm American and I'm working with this band heart uh, as an extra musician. I've done all a bunch of the recording. So he was one yeah. of the first people I met in 1974. So wow. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. crazy. So we've already, talked, we've already talked about Mutt Lang and, um, and incidentally, I got a, a little story. I, I once asked Mutt who, who his favorite rock singer was because, you know, he's worked with obviously some of the best. And, and he said, you know, I have to say that uh, it's got to be Brian. It's got to be Badams. For sure, Badams. <laughs> and, 
So that was great. I mean, he's worked with um, Luke Graham. Was that voice or was that your godfather voice? No, that was my Mutt Lang voice. <laughs> yeah, I had to say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On this, yeah. the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and incidentally, I, I know there was an article where Brian was asked the same question, and he said that his favorite rock singer was Lou Graham, who also was a right. sort of product. Or, you know, yeah. they've worked together. Um, but if you ask Lou uh, years ago, he was complaining about Mutt. And, and Is that right? In, in an interview, he said, making 404 destroyed my voice because he made him oh. do things uh. he was used to doing. And like I was explaining earlier about how Mutt would push you, not, not like in a bad way. He would just see, see how far you could go to make it yeah. better than it was. And, right. You know, we did an opening uh open up for foreigner at the middle of that record tour and uh, we did about two or three weeks in the united states and you're we all waiting for the song i've been waiting for a girl yeah. and he'd go up and maybe two of the nights he would go up i've been waiting you know he wouldn't right. i've been waiting he'd stay down oh, wow oh, interesting was either way he just wouldn't go for it you know because i don't know if that was something that he was comfortable with he just couldn't it was so hard to do. <laughs> well, wow. It's amazing. It's amazing that like when you look at Def Leppard, I think it's probably one of the most interesting examples of Mutt's ability to turn Joe Elliott into the singer that he became because the first record, you know, he's not going there at all. It, it, he's going there, but he's not like living there. And then by Pyromania, you're like, you clearly see that, that Mutt has created, um, you know, J Joe has this whole other side of himself that comes out, which defines his entire. I'm sure he regrets having to sing all that now too. But, <laughs> but yeah. Say, yeah, these guys are yeah, coming yeah. out now, going. Ugh. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and I know, you. I know, Mud brought him to tears as well, hmm. and he just has a way of doing that. And like he says, I mean, he just has such a high bar, and he expects you to at least try to see his vision through. Interesting, and, and he. You know his work ethic is such that he doesn't try to push you too hard. He just push he just pushes you to what he's used to for himself. He'll never ask you to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. You know, yeah, working right. eight hours or whatever. I, so, I totally agree with you. That, that yeah. makes total sense, and that's what makes it um, so doable. And because you know that he's behind you a hundred percent. He doesn't want to make you. He doesn't want you to fail. He wants you to try something. It's going to be challenging because. Yeah, let's go to let's go to a place where no one's gone before. And there was a com a lot of comments about you mentioned the Def Leppard thing. And he, when I was working with him that first record in his house, and he said we made two two records before Pyromania. And he said, okay, we can spend a year making or spend a few months making the next one, or we can really dig in and spend a lot of money and time, and we can make a Sergeant Pepper's. That's what he right. was trying to sell them on. Let's just make this as great as possible. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. same for the next record, which took many years because of, they had some injury thing. The drummer got in the accident and Mutt got in an accident and everything got pushed back. And I mean, he was telling me where they, they ran the master tape on, in the recording studio. You could almost see through the tape. It was so worn through. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah. That's how much overdubbing they would do, and yeah. they just kept yeah. going back and going back, making it great. And that was before the mix. They took it to another level on the mix level. So it takes sometimes years. And in that, in those days, where you didn't have Pro Tools, you didn't have anything to fix you. You had no. to play it 
even if it meant one note at a time. And a question that I used to get was, oh, I heard a story where he would make you play one string at a time and that would be a chord. And I said, it never, it never happened. I mean, not, not to me. I, I mean, I heard of stuff like that. But no, he just wanted it to be popular story because that was one of the questions that was coming up in the next feed so there, there's your answer yeah no <laughs> getting one string at a time yeah i asked yeah. nigel green the same question do you, you remember nigel of course they do yeah yes. so he's one of my good friends and and i asked him the same question about one string at a time thing he says no not really he said there was one incidence where they had to do some kind of a jangle and i forget what he said whether they took other strings off so that they weren't ringing in behind or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't ever like doing a whole chord one note at a time. We used to put tape on some of the strings right. to keep them from ringing when you were trying to do some complicated jangle part. That, those were the ones, the jangly ones. Oh my gosh. Mm. They were like, I, I, you can see I had my hands. I'm not uh, genetically gifted. <laughs> I have little pork sausages. So Mutt's <laughs> fingers are like this. Yeah, He's they are. Bad. Like, bad. Whoa. And a lot of great guitar players of our era have very long fingers. Uh, Eric Clapton's really long fingers. Alan Holdsworth's fingers were like this long. Wow. Just when Hendrix is long, I think Hendrix has had long yeah, fingers. As well, if you watch Woodstock and his thumb, all the way around, yeah. Top, like goes over the neck from the top yeah. down. It's like, yeah. it's, I mean, okay, we got. I got to work twice as hard. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the less notes, you know, whatever. Uh, but you you referred to David Gilmore earlier about that, and uh, I think I, I don't remember being a real aficionado of him until like you know about the wall and all that, where sure his sound just kind of grew. Yeah. And every it's record mental. would get even more sophisticated and like that era with comfortably numb and all that was everybody wanted that solo tone it was just so emotional and how could you lose with that kind of sound you know it's beautiful mm -hmm. so i mm -hmm. i tried to steal from him and I, as i have from so many people over the years he uh, does say a lot with very you know with very little in a way like he's another clapton-esque kind of guy who can do a lot in just a slow, slow bend and you're like whoa i'm feeling that you know and the music right. sort of dictates that because it it's open it's musical it gives you all this sense of melody you know it just implies that so i guess that's what it is you know whatever the music implies you're going to try and feel fulfill that so you know what i've always wanted to ask you about is during that phase i mean during the phase of your career You've been able to like play within having a keyboard player, having that Brian playing second guitar. Then there was that phase where you guys went down to a three piece, which, <laughs> which I thought was really cool. Like when Brian suddenly he's on a P bass and and everybody's wearing white, the amps are all. I just thought it looked like wow, these guys are punk rock now or something. I but I wonder like as a guitar player, I always wonder this because when I listen to Live at Leeds or Song Remains the Same, when 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 Page or Townsend or whatever goes for a solo type thing and you don't have that that weight like when we play with slash slash he he will not play really without a second guitar he needs that kind of that sort of support you know what i mean so mm -hmm. as a guitar player does it change the game entirely when you're like i'm going to do my thing and you get to you have to figure out all those parts as the only guitar player now it definitely uh, you when we took that approach uh, you remember we just came out of working with mutt who had so many parts and of course even when we were a five-piece band um i was trying to play two or three things at once if i could sure. uh and with kind of like different sounds so you're kind of compromising on all of them just to get the right you know the mood 
And, you know, we had lengthy sound checks with Matt in the, those early years, 1992, around then when we'd uh, wake up, the neighbors would come out and he would basically guide you through. He said, don't worry about the little things, just make the, 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 the meat of the song come through and find, sure. you know, you can throw one in, that's fine, don't worry about it. You know, he wasn't putting any pressure on you. But, but going to the three-piece, songs from that era, it was a real struggle to try to make, give the, the, the uh, can't stop this thing we started, you got jangles, you've got rhythm parts, and there's nothing else. There's all this counter melody with keyboard, and it was, I, I think what I did is I, I'm just going to try and do it at, like Pete Towns would do it, live leads, and that, the hell with it. And, yeah. and that's the end of it. And we kind of got away with it. It was only supposed to be for a few months or like a year, and it went for almost five years. Wow. Was it that long? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. four and a half years. And I begged him to go back to <laughs> <laughs> um, Just because. But think of all the money saved on flights, on hotel rooms. <laughs> That's the first thing I think of every time when I see that kind of thing. Man, these guys, are, they're brilliant. They're saving yeah, money. As, as long yeah. as Keith got extra money to reflect that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're doing three guys' jobs. You should probably get paid twice as much money at least. Yeah. Yeah, And at that time, it, it, was, it was a lot of outside forces kind of. Of course, yeah. Pushing on that. Uh, Brian had gone through a relationship that had not gone well. And he was going to shut everything down. Mm. So we made we made this record uh, unplugged, yeah, and, mm-hmm. which was really great. Pat Leonard was the producer, and he played keyboard. And he, uh, how we got to that point was he sent. We were soliciting different producers. We solicited the guy that did the Clapton one. I can't remember his name. Um, and then Pat Leonard sent this tape in of a version of Brian's song "I'm Ready," and it was kind of done in a very kind of folky way. And it's amazing, yeah. I love that version, yeah. So yeah. I said, oh, this, this is the nicest version of anything anybody said so far. So we kept going back and forth. He got involved, but we did that record, and Brian did not want to tour that record, and he was going through a tough time personally, I think, and he said, all I have to do, I'm going to shut it down for a while and get my life together. I said, no problem, buddy, whatever you want to do. He said, but I have committed to these radio shows in the United States at Christmas time. There was four or five of them. And if I don't do them, the, the radio network will never play my songs again. Oof. Nice. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, you know, uh, I said, how about you and I, Mickey, just go down. And we, it's only for like a half an hour, 40 minutes a night. We go down and play these private radio shows and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, okay, whatever you want. And we went and did it. And just the three of us bust our way he went to the base and it was pretty rough in the beginning because you're used to hearing a guy dedicated to that position in the band and it's sure yeah and but he was you know singing and playing it's a different animal it's challenging yeah and Mm -hmm. he was a bit out out of sorts for the first little bit and then he kind of settled in and he loved it so much he goes i'd like to continue on with this Okay, how, how long? <laughs> just, just, for the, just for the first half of the year, and then that was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, and well, then we just kept going, and the management, well, everybody wants to see you, blah, 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 and the white clothes and the white marshal. 
<laughs> it looked it looked bitching though. Like it looked like the whole thing. Oh, that's what I kind of dig is that it was such a realization of like if we're going to do this, we're going like all in the look, the thing. And it, I thought it was. I, I really, it's one of my favorite phases. As much as I can only imagine the challenge you had to face, and I feel bad for you in that way because when you see without the keyboards and all that kind of stuff, when I see it now, you know, with the full arrangements, you're like, well, there it is. Of course, that's it's better because you have all those the ability to hear everything you know what i mean yeah and i i think after the fact and and i i thought about it i thought yeah, how, how did we get away with that but if you go see somebody even as a spectator or, or in the audience you're hearing songs that you know it's almost like your subconscious can hear those parts anyway of course you hear yeah. the voice and you can hear some kind of beat and there's some energy from my guitar you're kind of imagining the parts being there as long as you get the main vocal and melody as in our case because that's what we are um so it's not like rush we're playing all these amazing you know <laughs> instrumental pieces <laughs> so that, a, that a couple of so, a couple of questions that are coming in and, and we'll try to cover off probably oh five or six of them and um people so are you're not busy people. for the next four hours or anything right no no <laughs> but it's, it, it all relates to the same song and uh somebody's saying well when was oh. the last we played it when was it and then of course somebody's saying well why is is diana rare recording to find what's the, the significance and uh you know what's uh what's the story behind that the, the song diana why well, or why is it such a rare recording to find and uh when was the last time you played it all sorts of things i mean i guess uh, a lot of people are loving the song and and questioning uh I didn't realize it was that rare. I, I didn't either. I, yeah. yeah, I think it was like a B-side for a single. So um, in those days, it was vinyl and maybe a cassette. And uh, I, I don't know even the premise of the song. I know that Brian's a fan of her and he met, had a personal relationship with her. You know, Lady Die, we're talking about. Yeah. Princess right? Die. Yeah. yeah. That's where the whole premise mm -hmm. of it comes. From. Yeah. What are you doing with a guy like him? <laughs> yeah, that's what we all wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, we're like, wow, it's slamming together. Prince so, Charles. Yeah, yeah. So, so imagine when when we actually met them in in uh, at a dress, <laughs> and we were like, what's he gonna do? Clarify here too before we're on TMZ. When you said Brian had a personal relationship, you're just saying like mutual friends, correct? Or was yes, there? Yeah. A, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I just, don't. I don't yeah. know anything else about anything. No, about I just you know you, it's the internet now. So you say it's Brian had a personal yeah. relationship. Next thing you know, we're on TV. Clickbait. Exactly. Which, I know, meant it was fantastic for our show, but I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, I just know that they knew each other and uh, they had had you know talked or whatever. I mean, there, there was communication. I don't, I don't think there was anything weird, but uh, oh, I say weird as in. Like, I don't think it was any romantic thing. Uh, I didn't, I didn't get it. You don't think? Yeah. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, there there was, if there was good on him. And Brian would talk about it. I mean, of he's just not. devastated he's not around. And I, yeah. we were doing a gig in Jones Beach, New York, and the news came in that night, and he uh, was devastated. So as you would, it's a tragedy. Yeah. But that's a great song. I didn't realize it was that. I mean, that song felt like a hit. To me, I remember that uh, yeah, song being huge. Uh, well, yeah. People are putting in the comments just saying, you know, uh, it's almost impossible to find. And really, uh, I mean, yeah. Hmm. Wow, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure with the internet, I mean, it's out there somewhere. I would imagine. Yeah, I assume it's yeah. Someone's got it somewhere. Yeah. And in um, Brian, Brian's case, he's like us. We try to emulate who we appreciate, and he loves Paul Rogers. And mm. Uh, mm. Um, I think that was kind of his. I'm going to do my Paul Rogers on this. 
Great. Yeah, actually, it's funny that you bring that up because I often wondered where Brian's, because with a gravelly voice like that, you know, and I was just listening to some of the stuff before we talked here, the live stuff and whatnot, and I'm like, uh, with guys like him or Rod Stewart or any of the guys with the gravelier school, I'm always like, man, I, I don't know how they can, I mean, Brian sounds as good today as he did when he was like, you know, a young man. So I'm like, wow. So I, that's just, just the way he sings. He opens his mouth and that's what comes out. It's not... It's not a, you know, it's, he's just learned to really work with what he has and he sounds great. Well, it's funny because the comments that you guys always get and, and Keith, I don't know if you know this as well, but everybody always says, why don't, why doesn't Toop do a a Brian Adams song? And, and they actually have, and Corey took the lead on that. So have you had the opportunity to hear the, uh, the the cover of that? That's pre, I think that's pre Keith, that song. So we did, uh, we did remember. Oh yeah. That's me for sure. Yeah. So you have to check out our version. It's on. You can just look it up on YouTube or whatever. We decided to dig deep. If we're going to do Brian, it's kind of like, well, what are you going to do? Like, (laughs) yeah, everything I do, or you know, it's like you know, there's so many. Like the songs are so huge. We do play that once in a while. Still, you do. Remember, Blue Moon. He'll just call it. You know. Oh, right oh my on. God! Does that happen a lot? With, with you know, when a guy's been around as long as you guys have, do things just get called out, and you're like, oh, you yeah. have to have just like sixty songs in your head at all times, or how does that work? Well, yeah, that that can happen. As and we've had a new different bass players for the last several years, so I always oh. encourage him. Listen, you probably want to check at least get the key of these songs in your head. Can you find oh, your way through it? But uh, the last few years before we stopped last March, um, Brian had a feature in the show where he said. Uh, ask me any song. Oh no! <laughs> once the word got out, people would bring signs saying, "Can you play this?" And the first thing I would do when I walked out on stage was look for the signs. Oh, <laughs> what's that song? <laughs> what's the key? It's like some obscure song off on a day like today or Eleven or something. Oh. You know, you think, oh. wow. And then oh, you get to like, and you're sweating like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd say, oh, there's somebody, that song. And literally, by some miracle of providence, <laughs> and then you knew whether, you know, you could hear it in your head, it would, would the minor set or whatever it went, you know. And somehow I got bailed out and I uh, just, but that was terrifying. But would it be the full song though. or was it was it the full song or would you just kind of go to a point and then be uh, like, yeah, oh. we do like a verse okay. of course. Because he was that, soliciting different well, I was people. Gonna say, because would that be pre teleprompters? I mean, how do you remember the words to all those songs? Like, the well, he gets a teleprompter. I get Jack. So. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm well, so maybe one it. day, you know, once you put in, you know, a couple more years, I'm sure you'll get your own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quite there yet. Keith. Yeah, we got to go down to a three piece before they'll give it to you. <laughs> but, but talk about success as a Canadian artist. And let's just go back for a second to Reckless, which, um, from my understanding, is the first rock record to sell a million copies, go diamond. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, told to me my good buddy Bob Roper, who might be watching the first album to actually recoup. Uh, as a from a record perspective in Canada, what was the success? Wow. What was the success like back then? I mean, what was the feeling of of, of riding that high? Um, you know, I, I, people ask me that, and I don't. I, we didn't know. We just had so much work to do. <laughs> you just wanted to get um, everything done. You knew that you had to make a record. Uh, you didn't had no idea. How, like I said about six, summer '69, it's just a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the first single off the song was Run to You. And, it, you know, it was received moderately. And 
uh, Heaven got to number one. It was part of a film that came out and did nothing, and we re-released it, put it on that record, and it went to number one. So, shoot. Um, yeah, so it just, we had no idea. It was all the machinery behind the actual going out on tour and headlining or whatever you're doing, opening up for people, and you didn't even notice anything about success. You know, oh, it's good. Let's move up the chart. Great. That means we can do more gigs, or that means we can tour next year, or that means we can do another record. You don't have any idea how long it's going to last. And I, I can tell you right now, when I started in 1981, I would never have imagined to get 10, 20 years, never mind 40 years working almost exclusively with one artist. It just doesn't seem like... First of all, the time's gone so fast. <laughs> you know, and and I just think we're, you know, the whole generate that generation, there was so much focus on, on that particular idea about being in a band and going on tour and playing concerts and going to concerts. And it hasn't really left us. People are still doing it in, in mass. And I think uh, my, my own kids, they probably won't see the same idea. It'll be completely different, but... That's true. Yeah, we were so fortunate, and uh, a bunch of things happened at that time for us. If you talk to anybody in a record label in the early '80s, they'd say, "Well, you're going to make a record, and then you make another one, and then you'll move from clubs to small theaters, and then you're going to open up for people, and you make another record." So by the time you're ready to headline, you're looking at like five to ten years and four or five records. Well. We were very lucky. I got involved with Cuts Like a Knife. We were headlining our own shows uh, five years, three years later, which wow. is like, but there was reasons for that, I think. And, uh, well, first of all, just Brian and Jim being writers, they were well-established. They had a lot of material to back them up. They knew what the process was for making that happen. And MTV came into play right around then. And right. that shortened your career uh, arc by several years because all of a sudden you could promote yourself visually uh, in, in a capacity that had never been seen before outside of just doing the regular TV shows like uh, Saturday Night Live or whatever was available, uh, Solid Gold or whatever they could find for right. to tell the, the, uh, specifically the American public and maybe Europe that you were who you were. That was the biggest challenge was getting into media. It wasn't just radio. It was physically, oh, I, I like it. Like you say, you saw Brian in 1983 in the Jubilee Theater or whatever opening for Loverboy. You thought, oh, this guy, he's got all this energy. That's the kind of impact you yeah. wanted to make on people so they would possibly come back and see you again. And it was all part of this mechanism and, and being uh, involved and watching all these new entities come into play like MTV and radio being kind of syndicated where playlists, you know, if you got on a playlist, you got reach way more people. It was just a formula, a kind of thing that, that pushed your career forward. And we were just lucky to time it. And then Brian always says, you know, if we released record either a year later, uh, reckless, a year later or a year earlier, we would have never had the same success. It was complete timing. And um, prior to that, uh, for Cuts Like a Knife, we were really lucky to get an opening slot with the band Journey in the United States. And we went from March until August. And they were at the peak of their career. They were probably the biggest arena act in America. Right. And 
you go and play like I, it's probably like Shania when she was doing like five nights in one place. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and you go and you play the reunion in Dallas for five nights. You go and play the Forum for seven nights. You play Madison Square Garden for four nights. Opening up, you're going to see so much more of your audience and. That, I think, did more than anything in the early 80s to, to get us on board down south, you know. That's so, amazing. So can you pinpoint over your career, is there a highlight that stands out? We, we had Pat on the show a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were talking <laughs> the same thing about, you know, uh, favorite shows. Um, so aside from playing with Sporty Spice, is there a show <laughs> or, or a moment in time that stands out for you? Oh, gosh. I'm sure they all must. Live Aid was a pretty big deal, stuff like that. Yeah, I don't, I, at the time, I don't have, you know, that real significant memory of Live Aid because we kind of were in the middle of a tour. We came in, we got up early in the morning to do it. We left right after we did our show, it was around noon. It was in the summer, and we went and did our own show in Ohio. We took off. We didn't get to stick around and kind of soak up wow. what was really going on. So, we, again, wow. it was like you don't really get a chance to, you know, enjoy or drink it up what you've done what you've done you've got something ahead of you to take care of you know and you didn't realize the significance while doing it too right no of course not yeah. yeah it was like oh, okay we got to go do this so we're supposed to go tour it was like an almost like an inconvenience but not really i mean you could see it's the, a gig yeah the magnitude of it you know and even like the amnesty tour in 86 was what are we doing here but then you years later you can get a better sense of of what the experience was and what it totally. meant. It, it might have been aggravating at times, but it was a real opportunity and a life experience because I can just take my brain back to there and go, oh, I know exactly what I, what I was thinking then and what I was doing. And it, it was interesting times. I mean, and again, I just, we were lucky to have so many crazy ass experience uh, in our career. And, and Brian drives a lot of it. He's, He's like Mutt. He's so you say he, he, Mutt respects his voice, but they're a lot alike. And Mutt used to say that to me all the time. Adams reminds me. He's really, I'm going to go to my South African voice. <laughs> he reminds me of one of his younger men. He's really like, <laughs> you know? that's perfect. That's you know, that's perfect. and he because I think he had a real personal so he could relate to Brian. You know, as a young singer and, and Mutt sure, is yeah. a terrific singer. A guy is an unbelievable singer. So. Um, but he, he likes the idea of someone's character and uh, I was going to say also you were talking about Brian singing and he can mimic almost anyone it's ridiculous. really wow you do Joe uh, Joe Cocker in a heartbeat oh I could see that yeah he does oh, I'd Ray, love to hear that that's Ray Charles he can do Ray Charles it's freaky how good it is wow uh, he does Tina Turner ah, you know he does that <laughs> incredible mimic and but it's not like Oh, that's a joke. Okay, that's scary. That's too good. You know, he's, wow. he's a really incredible gift there. And he's had it since he was a kid. And I remember meeting him. <laughs> I'll talk about this because um, a lot of people ask me, how did you meet Brian? And I say, okay. And I heard about him through a mutual friend. I was in a club band in Toronto. We were kind of doing all the clubs. We had some original music. We were trying to get people interested in it. And the, one of the guys in our entourage said, oh, do you know this cat, Brian Adams? He's uh, filling in for the singer of Sweeney Todd, uh, Nick Gilder, because he's gone on to create a solo career. I said, no, I, I've heard the name because I know lots of people in Vancouver that talk about him. He said, well, he really wants to meet you. He's a fan. I said, okay, well, let's go have lunch. And uh, we went up in this little diner in Toronto. 
and he was bouncing off the walls. The energy, it was, I, I don't think I'd met anybody like that at a time. And, uh, I, you could see that he, he had the energy at least, you know, if I, I wasn't familiar with his talent as much as, as it's not until I started to work with him and the drive, you know, he just never gave up. The first few months we were on tour and we were uh, touring in Toronto area, uh, trying to promote um, his record. And I roomed with him and it was like crazy. He was on the phone <laughs> up, uh, first thing in the morning on the phone, phoning the next city radio stations. Are you playing my record? Are you playing my, come on, man, come on, get on the, get on the board. We're taking, you know, he was like, wow. Uh, he was not going to let up. He, pushed and pushed and pushed uh, and he was driven and that, i think more than anything that's going to at least get your foot in the door never mind that what are your music your talent or whatever uh, you got to keep pushing and, what do you uh, think is the secret the fact that you guys have been together for so long and i think of it in terms of like you know mike campbell to tom petty you know, that kind of like hearing a Brian Adams song without your guitar would be really weird. Like if it was just like some other guy playing guitar, I'd be like, well, that's not Keith. So, I mean, but the fact that like he really, you know, obviously whenever he makes music, it's kind of like, well, Keith's going to, you know, Keith is going to be on this song. And, and for is it is it like a is it the lesson of like being a musician is so much about the hang as it is about your ability? You know what I mean? Like if Keith Scott was a great guitar player, but he was a dick, you might. <laughs> you know, but I think is it the fact that you guys just can get along and can have this sort of like ability to hang all these years. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons, but those are good ones. I mean, the ability don't to be a hang dick. Out. Don't be a dick. I think that's well, hopefully yeah. I, I've been a dick. I can't deny it. <laughs> well, we all have. Yeah. 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 And it's, yeah. You know, it's part of the learning process, but uh, I mean, there's been many cases where it's Brian on guitar. It's not me. So right. he'll, he'll try to do as much as he can because he can play guitar and he, yeah. because he's melodically, you know, he's, he's oriented that way. He comes okay. up with great parts and uh, his rhythm playing is terrific. He's, yeah. he's might call him, uh, he had a name for the wrist, Reggie wrist or something. Because <laughs> his rhythm is he swings and Corey, you can probably tell that Mutt's swing is so unique um when he does his shuffles it's like it's so unlike what i have used to be shuffled i'm like the chicago bear da, 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 and it's real draggy mutz has this energy it's where you emphasize the beat within the shuffle and it's it took me a long time to even get a smidgen of what it was uh, and what does he hand me one of the first songs to record was can't stop shuffle it's like, and his shuffle is so unusual and unique, but it swings like a mofo and he has his own way of hearing it. And I'm just like hanging on for dear life and just, geez, I'm not getting it. I'm dancing around. <laughs> he's so patient, you know, he's amazing that way. And uh, there's a way everybody hears things differently. And, and he heard a shuffle that way. And it was incredible. And Brian has a great shuffle. So, you know, I, I say Brian is tribute to a lot of the stuff. And, and at the demo stage, especially the early records, like Cuts Like a Knife and Reckless and Into the Fire, Brian and Jim would be writing at Jim's studio in his house. And I'd get a call at 11 o'clock at night because I lived, you know, 10-minute drive away from them and, uh, in Vancouver. And he'd say, 
we just finished this cool song. Come over and play a solo. I said, what's well, 11? And so you drag your ass and you go play and you hear this amazing track. <laughs> and you play half asleep, you play a couple of notes. And that would be your template guide to when you went to go track the song for real. If if you decided to track that song. And wow. that's kind of how a lot of things got started. But initially, Brian would do as much as he physically could ahead of time. And something stuck. Um, there's a song called This Time from Cuts Like a Knife. Sure, yeah. The whole melody line, it's all him. It's just, and he's played, I think I came in on the very last chorus because I slept Oh, okay. In, but, wow. But, you know, he's, he can play. You know, he's, he's, he's amazing that way. So One time I went to the studio. I used to work, with, did some stuff with Bob Rock back in the day. Mm-hmm. So I went to visit Bob at the warehouse when you guys were doing that record. And, and I'm just standing in the lobby with Bob, and, and Brian walks in, and he goes, come up, hear a song. Brian was always really cool that way. He'd be like, well, okay. I want to go in and, like, crash people's sessions, but it was a mixing session. They And they played the song, and it was like, I don't even remember what song it was. It was just so, like, overwhelmingly a song I never heard before. And I remember being like, whoa. And I'd known Bob to be such an alpha male. Like, he was always the biggest dog in the room, and he would bark. You know, <laughs> and not so much bark, but he was yeah, he was just kind of like, you are, you were always very sort of, yes, sir. You were always very sort of like, okay, right? And then he, uh, but it was so interesting watching Bob. And then after they finished, uh, they played the track, and then they were talking about, like, what was left to do. And he said, well, we got to finish that one song. And I remember Brian just very casually going, nah, I dropped that song. <laughs> just very, and I just sort of went like, wow, he's a bigger dog than that dog. You know, and I just got this moment where, and Brian wasn't barking. He was just sort of like, nah, just sort of like, I, and I remember Bruce, Bob being kind of like, but we worked so hard on that song. And he was kind of like, yeah, I, I'm not feeling or however he said it. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I remember just being like, wow, like you just saw this sort of like, like that guy's the real Jedi in the room here. You know what I mean? But Bob's so an amazing that, dude, that, an amazing Italian. We're working on that Irish Rovers record, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. My yeah. friend, you know, do you know Craig Northy? I'm sure some Of guys. course. Of course. Love Craig Northy. What a talent. Yeah, he's a very good friend of mine, and I've known him for a long, long time. And he sent me a mashup today of, what was the track? It was Huey Lewis. Yeah, track, and Metallica. Yeah. And Metallica on top. It's yeah. yeah, it's incredible, yeah. But I've known, of course, Bob for years, and yeah. uh, he's, Simple Moves South especially, he would invite me up to lots of sessions in Los Angeles and get to record with him, and he's just a great guy, and I, I He's a good, dear friend. Uber talent, on, great guitar player. Underrated yes. guitar player, actually. Yes. You worked with Bob and uh, Jan together, Jan Arden, yes. right? Yep, we did. I've done three records with Jan. Um, it started with a covers record, and Bob produced all of them. And I think Dave Pierce, uh, you know Dave Pierce from Calgary? Uh, he's a yep. producer, too, and writer guy. Anyway, Jan, I was texting with Jan before we went on today, and I said, you're the guest, and so she said to say hi. <laughs> She loves you. I love her too. Yeah, she's the finest the humans to grace the planet. Uh, she is. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, exactly. She's one of our favorite guests. Actually, she's super. Was she cool. funny? Oh my oh, god, yeah. was she funny? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> never funny. <laughs> I tell you, I did two of those tours with her, and she had a na- name. She called me Giggles McSquiggles. <laughs> you laugh at everything I say. I said, you are the funniest person I've ever met in my life. Oh, my God. You would just kill it. At 24-7, she was funny. I just loved her to death. It was amazing. Yeah, totally. That is fantastic. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but we there, have. Are, there, there are some questions that, of course, we're going to end on. And, of course, you know, given the year 2020 and everything that's come along, 
Um, where are you guys at now? What what was the plan? And if there was one, where do you where do you continue on? What, what's the plan going forward now? Is there anything that everybody can look forward to? Or I think yeah, I think looking forward, uh, there's lots of good things. We're gonna get around all this at some point. Uh, it's gonna be different, of course, but um, in our case. Uh, majority of what we do is live performance, so obviously that's off the table, and there's not much we can do about it, and this is the longest break we've had in quite a long time. Um, right now, Brian, Brian and Mutt have actually been working together. All right. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm going to actually try to do remote uh, solo tracking tonight with with Mutt and Ola, his engineer. So it's the first Crazy. time I've been in contact, so, and I haven't seen Mutt. 15, 20 years. I haven't worked with them for almost 25, so it'll be interesting. Wow. And I'm looking Please say hi. Please yeah, say hi for me. I yeah. promise I will. And uh, um, as far as touring goes, I talked to Brian last week, and he said we've got dates and every book that I don't think are going to happen because they're overseas and the protocols are still strict. And I don't know. It's a tough time to, to even anticipate, you know? Yeah. What's yeah. what's the future? Are people going to be able to go out for a while? Maybe not for another year. Or who knows? But I hope not. I hope that like do you, you say, qualify? Do you qualify for the over sixty five vaccination? Certainly do, and I'm waiting. Hit <laughs> it. <laughs> Jump on that. Get on that website. I am a senior citizen here, so. Um, <laughs> I would never guess that you you look the same as you always did. I. <laughs> I'll be 67 in July. So, oh, that's I'm going to look like I'm going to look like Abe Vigoda by then. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you're all you're all drinking that Lanigan water we talked about. <laughs> Abe Vigoda with say, a wig on. Thank you, thank you, you guys again for showing the interest and and um, oh, I don't normally do many. I, I know I pushed you off, Corey, until the New Year because uh, at the time when you asked me, I, I was not feeling confident about talking about things just i think it's just the general sense it was pretty hard only to, halfway there yeah. oh, sorry yeah. um, it, was, yeah. it was hard to be positive at the time and i just thought i did one uh with a friend of mine steve dawson uh, a podcast with him earlier in the year and it got pushed back because of covid and uh, and i i enjoy talking about it because a lot of people don't know the stories and they don't know the behind the scenes and i'm i'm interested in that stuff when i with my musical heroes and I want to know the stories too. So it's important yeah. that we at least talk about it and share some of it. So most of it's really great and fun stuff. And we're just lucky to, to be able to do it. So. That is fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we so much appreciate you being with us and of course, uh, appreciate everybody for tuning in our show Tuesday at two to talk. If you enjoy the show, feel free to click the stars button and help us continue to do this. Because who knows when you guys are going to be back out on stage, right? So um, we enjoyed talking to you, and uh, it's been fantastic. So thanks again, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Thank Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Keith. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe safe and well, and all the best. Good luck, and hopefully we'll be playing soon. Absolutely, brother. Cheers. Thanks, everybody. All right. Take care. Thanks again.